one major divide between Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton, how they will approach women voters. The gender gap is back. Polls show Hillary Clinton with a 19-point lead over Donald Trump among likely female voters. Common sense would suggest to me the Democrats do get a big boost, particularly amongst women candidates, over this whole Kavanaugh thing. The polls, as we move into the midterm season, are showing us that um, there is um, a gap for Republican voters with women. Well, the gender gap is up. From American Public Media, this is Campaign 68. I'm Stephen Smith. In today's political climate, there's a lot of talk about women voters or the female vote. But political scientist Lori Cox Hahn says it's a big mistake to lump them into a single group. Hahn is a professor at Chapman University in Southern California. She says there's a lot we get wrong when we talk about voting trends and political power among women in the U.S., Kate Ellis sat down with Han recently to explore the activism of women across the political spectrum, both in 1968 and today. Professor Lori Cox Han, welcome to our podcast. Thank you. 1968 was an incredibly tumultuous year. Were there particular ways that the three candidates running for president, Humphrey, Wallace, and Nixon, tried to appeal to women? Yes, in but not in the way that we think of that today. There were no overt strategies to target women as a voting block as there are now and that we've certainly gotten used to uh, since the late, you know, mid to late 1990s and in every campaign since. And it's interesting when you look back at 1968 that while we're used to seeing a gender gap in how women vote, there really wasn't much of one at all as far as the exit polls from Gallup show for 1968, there was no gender gap for those supporting Nixon. It was 43% men, 43% women. Slight gender gap when you look at uh, Hubert Humphrey, it was 45 women, 41 men. And then um, in reverse for George Wallace, it was 16% men, 12% women. But now we see a much larger gender gap. But we really weren't tracking that until 1980. And that's when a lot of that data really begins. Why did we not start tracking that until about 1980? I think that the main reason is that the study of women in politics was still so new in the 1970s. I think that there really wasn't a lot of attention paid to women as voters up until that point. And then we definitely see a big shift in how women are voting versus how men are voting by 1980 with the election of Ronald Reagan, and also with the shift of the Republican Party moving more to the right with a conservative like Reagan at the top of the ticket. And that's when you start to see more of a gender gap in voting patterns? Definitely. And the gender gap is, and and this gets reported incorrectly in the news media quite a bit, but the gender gap is the difference in usually the winning candidate and how those voters break down in men versus women. I'm going to follow up with that a little bit later. Um, I'm going to bring us back to 68 for a minute. Um, When when we think about 68, I think it's easy to remember the women's liberation movement and radical activists, people like Angela Davis. But What about women who didn't identify as liberal or progressive then? What do we know about them and the ways that they participated in politics? Women have always uh, been active in a variety of ways in politics, really, since 
you know, the, the, the suffrage movement in the 19th century and then after the passage of the 19th Amendment in, in 1920, particularly during the 1968 election, you see uh, a lot of women getting involved in anti-war protests, not necessarily some of the same women that are in the women's rights movement, but you have moms or girlfriends or sisters uh, who are concerned that the young men that they know and love are about to be drafted and, and sent off to Vietnam. So there were a lot of draft-related issues and protests that women got involved in. And women have been involved in interest groups and very active you know, for many, many decades. Also, during the 1960s, you see a lot of women who are working for both the Democratic and Republican Party as volunteers. And so you have women who are maybe participating a little bit less than men do in terms of volunteer work or donating money. Um, and at that point, certainly not voting at the high level that they do now. But there is certainly evidence that both Democratic and Republican women are active at the local level, doing a lot of volunteer work for the parties, particularly on the Republican side. I've done a lot of research on the Nixon administration and working on a current book about Pat Buchanan's role in the Nixon White House, in particular, looking at political strategy. And so in looking at a lot of the documents available at the Nixon Library, I found evidence where Buchanan and other key advisors are referencing, you know, some of the women who volunteer for the Republican Party at the local level. They refer to them as the ladies in tennis shoes. And whether it was in 68 or throughout certainly the first term of the Nixon administration, you see concern for whether or not Nixon is becoming too liberal in some of his domestic policies because there's concern that those ladies in tennis shoes will not be as motivated to volunteer and support Nixon as much as they did before. That's that's quite a term. Who were these ladies in tennis shoes? Do we know about their their demographic characteristics? Yeah, I think a lot of them were probably um, married white women in suburbs. And certainly a lot of stay-at-home moms at that point in the 1960s who, you know, were very concerned about a lot of these domestic issues. And obviously, you know, the data shows that women have always been very interested in these kinds of issues. In the 1960s, uh, particularly by the end of the decade, it's a lot of the suburban wives and mothers, which even today is still very much a targeted swing group. And and a lot of those women were college educated. And one of the things we see that differs then to now is that college educated women tend to lean more to the Democratic Party than the Republican Party. But the fact that so many of them were identifying with the Republican Party in 1968 shows that that was still more of a moderate Republican Party as opposed to the shift to the right that we saw by the end of the 1970s and into the 1980s. And just so I'm clear, when you talk about domestic issues that they were concerned about, what were the main ones that they were thinking about? In the 1960s, particularly by the end of the decade, definitely economic issues, um, you know, and also, you know, Nixon ran on a law and order platform. So safety of 
you know, in in the community, uh, an increase in crime. And 1968 was a year of so much unrest in so many parts of the country. So these were issues that were really motivating a lot of people, particularly women in that demographic group who were leaning more towards, you know, Nixon's platform because he was promising law and order and safety and, and getting things back to normal. How much political power would you say women had in in 68, what did it, what would you say it looked like? Certainly not as much as women have now, partly because there just wasn't as much attention to women as a, a voting block, because now each campaign, each presidential campaign, both political parties really try to target women because there are so many women that uh, fall more into that middle category as far as being more, a little bit more independent or swing voters. But then there were so few women in elected office. And with the women's movement, what we call the second wave of the women's movement throughout the end of the 1960s, women are really starting to realize that they do have political power and really starting to become more engaged with political issues. So the power that they had, I think, was just starting to be realized. The women's movement really brought about this uh, opportunity for political engagement by the end of the 1960s that women hadn't really realized before. So, and it's, it's more than just about those who are active in the women's rights movement, even though there are some women who aren't as liberal or progressive or don't consider themselves to be feminist, there are many more opportunities for women to start getting involved after the 1968 election. Up until then, or even after that time, did people sort of assume that women were going to vote like their husbands? I mean, married women, at least? I think there was that assumption, yes. And, you know, we don't really have the data to tell us that it wasn't happening that way or it was happening that way. But I think that that did contribute to the fact that not as many people were paying attention to women as voters or not being targeted by campaign advertising in, in as overt of a way as we see now in today's campaigns. I'm going to get back to that in a minute as well in terms of what we know or don't know about those women. But let me keep going with this for a moment. In 1968, Shirley Chisholm became the first black woman elected to Congress. Can you talk about the place of women of color in that election season? Well, women of color are active both in the women's rights movement and also the civil rights movement. And, you know, some of the the other movements that are going on, there's so many of them during that time period. But certainly women of color are still very much marginalized in the in the political process. But we start to see this, what we now refer to as intersectionality of how as far as the issues that are important to women of color, they're very different than a lot of, you know, the white women, particularly the middle to upper middle class white women that are really dominating the women's rights movement at the time. And so women of color, particularly those that are involved in the civil rights movement, are actually getting a lot of you know, good experience in these kinds of political movements in a lot of different ways. It's just that their their voices really aren't being heard yet. So Shirley Chisholm is a very important role model and, you know, someone that a lot of women are looking to as a possibility of how the movement and a lot of different movements can help to create more opportunities for women and recruit women at a very early stage into the political process. 
Did the wives of the 1968 presidential candidates factor in much, either behind the scenes in a campaign or publicly on the campaign trail? Not anywhere close to what we see now. I think at the time, it was assumed that the the presidential candidates had very supportive wives and much more the traditional political wife. I mean, Pat Nixon was certainly, you know, a very traditional political wife and traditional first lady, How as we would now look back on it and define it. And so during that time period, the wives would certainly travel with the husbands, but weren't heard from on the campaign trail the way that they are now. I mean, it was very unlikely that at a public rally, for example, a wife of a candidate would make an appearance uh, beyond just being there on the stage or uh, speak at one of those kinds of events. It's not that they didn't do events with women's groups out of the public view, but We didn't really start to see wives become that active on the campaign trail, certainly until the 1990s, I would say. Um, You know, Hillary Clinton changed a lot about not only campaign wives, but first ladies during the 1990s. And then, of course, in 1996, you see Elizabeth Dole address the Republican convention in a way that we had never seen wives do before. Of course, she was a politician in her own right. So, uh, but back then, wives really, you know, more just a presence, but not anything like we see today. Right. Sort of seen, but not heard. Right. Hmm. Does the role that women played in the 1968 presidential campaign get the attention it deserves? Has it been studied as as much as it sh- should have been or needs to be? Definitely not. In looking at some of the major works on the 1968 campaign, There is shockingly little reference to women as voters. I have found very little uh, that really looks at the role of women as voters as you always see now. And in some of the, the, you know, more prominent books, you even look in the index under, you know, women and there's nothing. I mean, there are there are a few throwaway references about, oh, yeah, women were involved in, in some protests and interest groups. And, yeah, that was when the women's rights movement was, you know, the second wave was really getting started. So it's it's interesting that even though some of these things are being written now or in the last 10 to 15 to 20 years when the study of women in politics, particularly within political science, is so prominent and we take for granted that women are such an important part of any election – that I'm disappointed to see when, I, when I'm looking back to some of the literature on 1968 that there's just really not much reference to it at all. What do you think is behind that? How do you explain that? Well, I, again, I think it co- goes back to that women in politics, certainly as a, a subfield within political science, really doesn't emerge until the 1970s. And then how we study women as voters really doesn't come into its own, if you will, until 1980 when, or after the 1980 election, when, you know, people who study voting behavior and some of these other trends notice that, hey, there's a gender gap here in terms of how women and men voted for Ronald Reagan in 1980. And so it's part of just the growth of women in politics and women's studies and and how the academic disciplines evolved along with the women's movement throughout the 1970s. And I think that because there's not 
there was not as much attention being paid to women as voters in the actual campaigns that a lot of the scholarship that has done been done now or more recently just kind of skips over women as voters. I think that it's just it's just taken for granted that women weren't as important as we know that they were. And I think it's a topic that actually deserves a lot more attention. We think of 1968 as such a consequential election and such a consequential year in American political history that I think that there really needs to be a better understanding of how women during that time period with the dramatic growth of the women's rights movement were actually viewing the candidates and participating and it's, it's hard to get accurate numbers, but we should still look a little bit more at any kind of strategies or what was motivating women back then. You know, certainly in 1968, we can understand at that time period why, you know, people working on campaigns or the news media at that point, they weren't covering the same kind of things or focusing on the same kind of things that we do now. In hindsight, though, when any newer scholarship comes out about 1968, uh, there really is no excuse for not taking a closer look at the role of women in, in that campaign. All right, let's talk about the presidential election of 2016. What percentage of women voted for Hillary Clinton versus Donald Trump? And what do we know about the women voters in each of these camps? So the gender gap in 2016 was 11%. So when you look at the vote for Donald Trump as the winner of the election, that gap between men and women is 11%, with men obviously voting more predominantly for Trump. And one thing about 2016 is that there were people making projections that, oh, this is going to be the largest gender gap ever. You know, it's going to be 20%. I even saw some people saying it's going to be 25, 30%. Well, actually, it was pretty much the same as Barack Obama in 2008 and some other recent elections. So it was significant, but it wasn't different than what we've seen in recent years. And the interesting thing with the women who are Trump voters is you also see a gap between white and non-white women. So Trump, and when you break it down into the, the more subcategories of demographics, Trump won among white women. But then also, you know, if you look at college educated versus non-college educated, a lot of the women who, not all, but a lot of the women who supported Trump were white, non-college educated women. And, and in recent years, we've also seen there's the gender gap, but then there are these other categories within the gender gap. And so married versus single is an important one when you're looking at, at uh, women voters. So in recent elections, married women tend to vote Republican more often, and single women tend to still very much support the Democratic Party. So there is attention paid to the gender gap. But like I said, unfortunately, a a lot in the news media get the number wrong. They inflate it because they add up the numbers, but it's it's the difference for just that one candidate, as particularly the winning candidate. But it's really important to understand all of the subcategories there to really see the differences among women and how they're voting. One of the things that I'm struck by in how you're speaking is that the way that you talk about this is in terms of the gender gap. And that framing almost shows the way we have thought about women historically, which is with men as the reference in a sense. So to what extent are they voting like men versus not like men, as opposed to simply saying, how are women voting? Do, does that 
makes sense. Yes. Well, the thing that drives voter decision-making more than anything else, and this has been shown consistently by political science research, is partisanship. That is the one thing that, that drives a vote choice more than anything else. And I say constantly that women are not a monolithic voting block. And I think that's one of the biggest misconceptions out there in the news media, just in, you know, in general, that we just assume that, oh, women all vote the same. And that's such a ridiculous thing to, to think because women make up, you know, more of the population than men in the United States. So when you talk about ideological diversity or, you know, different partisan views, different life experiences, socioeconomic background, all of the things that we know can shape political socialization and voter choice, why would that be any different for women than it is for men? And so, you know, I, I often tell people, I, my, my students know that I say this, quite a bit, that instead of carrying around my business card, sometimes I think I would like to replace it with just a little card that simply says women are not a monolithic voting block and just hand that out to people when I'm giving a talk or when I'm meeting people professionally or, you know, just even in the grocery store or on an airplane. Uh, it's it's one of the biggest myths that, that is really most frustrating to me. We tend to just assume that women will support another woman candidate. Well, no, not really, because a liberal woman is probably not going to support a conservative Republican, even if she's running against a man. So it's more about the policy choices. It's more about partisanship and ideological views. And, you know, there are single issue voters. And I, I would guess that it would be difficult for a woman who is very much pro-choice to vote for a conservative woman who is pro-life and vice versa. And so the fact that we just assume that, you know, gender and, and just being a woman is going to dictate more than anything else is just sometimes mind boggling to me. And certainly, I think that was part of the media narrative that actually worked against Hillary Clinton first in 2008 and certainly in 2016. It's one of the reasons I think we saw people saying that, oh, the, the gender gap is just going to be huge this year, bigger than we've ever seen. Well, it wasn't. And I think that certainly points to the fact that women don't all vote the same. And gender is certainly not the driving factor in why someone would choose this candidate versus that candidate. So I would I would be very happy if we could get past that that myth out there about women voters. That's interesting because I, I feel like with the most uh, recent controversy around the Kavanaugh confirmation, it feels like there was a, a painful split among women who there were some women who assumed that everybody would believe and support Dr. Ford and her testimony. And in fact, many, many women didn't. Many, many women thought that Kavanaugh was being unfairly attacked. Right. And that really came down in terms of partisan and ideological lines. And, and I think that is one of the factors that is contributing to the, the divisive political environment in this country, that we just assume that all women are of the same mind and that all women have the same life experiences. And we know that that couldn't be further from the truth. And, and that definitely did play a role. I mean, there are women who out there who, when they hear, you know, that another woman has a different viewpoint, they're just shocked by that. And I think that it is, you know, incumbent upon women to start doing a better job of recognizing that we all are not always on the same page. 
we have so many different life experiences and so many different things that shape our view of the world that there is just as much diversity of viewpoint among women as there is in the general population. I want to talk about the fight for passage of the Equal Rights Amendment, uh, which ultimately failed in 1982. In the late 1960s, was one party more supportive of the amendment to the Constitution uh, than, than the other? What do we know about the different kinds of women who supported the ERA versus opposed it? Well, the assumption now is that the Democratic Party is much more supportive of women's issues uh, than the Republican Party. But in reality, certainly at the turn of the 20th century and you know, the, really the first two-thirds of the 20th century, uh, it was the Republican Party that was much more supportive of women's rights and promoting the Equal Rights Amendment. So the ERA was something that you know, was very prominent or much more prominent for the Republican Party and Republican Party platforms than the Democratic Party. And so while, for example, John F. Kennedy, you know, started the Commission for Women and did a few other things with equal pay back in the early 1960s, he never came out and endorsed the Equal Rights Amendment. Neither did Lyndon Johnson. Actually, Richard Nixon did as a candidate in 1968 and as president. And then, you know, his successor, Gerald Ford, did. So really, it's, it's until Jimmy Carter becomes president in 1977 before we see a Democratic president really pushing and fighting for passage of the Equal Rights Amendment. Now, obviously, the Republican Party sees a major shift in 1980 because then suddenly, you know, the ERA is dropped from the Republican Party platform. Um, you know, reproductive rights certainly are no longer part of the Republican Party platform as they are for the Democratic Party as the Republican Party shifts to the right. But up until 1980, the Republican Party has a much better track record in terms of publicly endorsing the Equal Rights Amendment and being much more supportive of these kinds of equal rights for women. Why would that be? Why would the GOP be more supportive of women's rights and equal the ERA than Democrats? If you really look at the shift that the Republican Party experienced, particularly after World War II into the 1950s and throughout the 1960s, you see that a lot of middle class, upper middle class, college educated married women are more identifying with the Republican Party and they are also identifying with the you know, equal rights for women. And so it's not that Democratic women are not identifying with this, but you really don't see a shift more to more liberal progressive women supporting this until they have an opportunity to become much more politically active with the second wave of the women's rights movement throughout the 1960s. And so also when you start to see the shift of or the growth of the modern conservative movement really starts with um, at least on the national level with Barry Goldwater's campaign for president as a Republican nominee in 1964. And then you start to see this divide within the Republican Party. Are they going to be more the traditional, what we tend to call the Rockefeller Republicans, but really should be called more the Nixon Republicans? Or are they going to be more what Ronald Reagan will do with the Republican Party as he's governor of California and he starts to think about running for president and does run for president in 76 and, and does win the presidency in 1980? 
the the shift more to social conservatism is really very much complete by the 1980s, where that's the dominant force within the Republican Party. So those changes are really contributing to the shift in terms of where each party is and then where it's breaking down on the issue of women's rights. You've, you've touched on this a little bit, but I, I want to kind of ask you in, in a broad sense again, if you would compare the voting trends and political participation of women today versus 50 years ago, what are some of the similarities and what are some of the differences and how have things changed? Since 1980, a higher proportion of women have voted than men consistently every campaign since 1980. So not only do women make up a larger section of the eligible voting population, but they do turn out in slightly higher rates than men. So that has been certainly a change since the, the 1960s. And similarities would be that even though the evidence isn't necessarily there to support it, that women, when you break women down into various subcategories demographically, that, you know, there are still some similarities in terms of how single women versus married women tend to vote or, you know, white women versus women of color, um, socioeconomic factors, education factors. I mean, these are all of the things that that made a difference for how women voted then and they still do today. I think we just have a much better understanding of it today. And I think political parties are better at targeting women in specific subcategories than in not just kind of a blanket, all women vote the same kind of strategy. You mentioned that if you could just hand out a card, it would be, you know, a reminder to everybody that women are not a monolithic group. They don't vote in monolithic ways. Are there any other myths about the female voter (laughs) or women's political participation that you'd like to dispel? I guess maybe it is just looking back that, you know, prior to 1980, that maybe the women's vote really didn't matter, <laughs> you know, and, and and that's not necessarily, I'm not really pointing blame at anyone. It's just that, that that's in such an important shift in terms of my own discipline of political science and, and when there are certainly more women who are political scientists who are starting to, you know, get more prominent positions at universities and who are really starting to expand the research and the literature on this topic. But I think that, and, and maybe it's it's more up to um, women historians or, or certainly, you know, political scientists who are interested in comparing trends from 50 years ago to now. But I think we need to do a better job of understanding the role that women played. And, and that will help us to better understand the role that women are playing now in, you know, presidential elections, midterm elections, you know, statewide elections, just across the board. I think we've missed out on some of that research and some of that knowledge that, that I think would be beneficial. So, you know, I think there's a myth that, well, before 1980, we just didn't worry about women voters. And maybe that's actually not a myth, that's reality. But I think that we need to remember that you know what, women were still pretty important before we started dragging the gender gap in 1980, and we we should probably have a better understanding of it. When you look at the sweep of American history, particularly 20th century and 21st century history, are there particular women who stand out to you in terms of helping women gain traction as political players and, and as women who have political power in this country? Who do you look at? 
you know, Nancy Pelosi is the first woman speaker of the House of Representatives and really the only woman to hold a top leadership position in Congress in either party. Or, you know, a few of the women who were elected to the Senate in, in 1992, 1994, very early on, like, uh, you know, Diane Feinstein, um, Patty Murray, you know, she's retired now, but Kay Bailey Hutchison, um, some of the women who've been, you know, have moved up the ranks and are now senior members on various committees and and have been on Capitol Hill now going on three decades. I mean, that's that's really important in terms of the longevity when you think how few women were there in 1992. But also, you know, well, one area that I would say that that there definitely needs to be improvement on both sides, and that is not only more women running for president, but more women being considered for vice president. And one of the most important things that that can happen is more women running and winning gubernatorial races because we've had so few women as governors. And if you look at the largest states like my home state of California or New York or Florida, none of those states have had a woman governor. And so especially New York and California, these are blue progressive states. Why why are no women being elected to these kinds of executive positions? Because that certainly helps to put more women in the pipeline or in, in you know, the on-deck circle, if you will, for being considered for president. And I often, when I'm giving a talk or even just talking in class with my students, I like to make the point that I'm not sure what's worse. The fact that the Democratic Party has not nominated a woman for vice president since 1984 with Geraldine Ferraro, or that it took the Republican Party until 2008 with Sarah Palin. So one of the things that I'm hoping will come out of 2016 and these midterms in 2018, that we will see more women running for president and being considered for vice president in 2020. And, you know, assuming that that Trump is still running in 2020, that it might take until 2024 for Republican women. But I think that, you know, those two presidential election cycles are going to be very significant to see more women running for president. And I think that will build on the momentum we've seen. And, and I certainly hope it happens in both parties, because that will be the truly, you know, groundbreaking historic event when we don't even think twice about seeing numerous women running for president or being considered for vice president or serving as state governors in both parties. When, when you look at this current political moment, we're just coming up to the 2018 midterm elections, how do you think about women's political power now and, and, and the, their potential to shape the outcome of these elections and I guess this is a two-part question, and in fact, and the fact that we have more women running for political office than just about any time in history. We have broken all sorts of records in this election as far as women running, women winning their primaries, and we are poised to potentially have the most women in, in Congress, uh, both the House and the Senate, and possibly even at the state level than ever before. So if you want to label 2018 as the next year of the woman, that would certainly be accurate. And I think that it will be a good night for women on election night. But it's not just Democratic women. Uh, while Republican women lag behind Democratic women in terms of the numbers of women running and women women winning, uh, we do see more Republican women as well. So this is a key moment with the Me Too movement and um, certainly the recent Senate confirmation of Brett Kavanaugh 
women are motivated, women are, um, you know, running at higher levels, and it will all come down to voter turnout. Because I, I do believe in the assessment I saw the other day that if there is a blue wave, it will be because of women. It will because be because of women voters who are more motivated to come out and vote, but it will also be because, you know, there are so many women, particularly on the Democratic side, who are viable candidates now. So there is potentially, you know, some historic things that will happen on Election Day. But we can't forget, though, that there are also Republican conservative women who are just as motivated, particularly after the Brett Kavanaugh confirmation hearings. So maybe that will that will play a role as well, because, like I said, women make up a larger portion of the voting electorate that men do. And so it's a matter of who is more motivated at this point. I know we talk about voter enthusiasm or motivation, Democrat versus Republican. Well, it's also important to look at men versus women, but then also within some of those subcategories that, that I've mentioned prior. Lori Cox Hahn is a professor of political science at Chapman University in Southern California. Professor Hahn, thank you so much. Thank you, Kate. This is Campaign 68. Next week, historian Rick Perlstein talks about the links between the campaigns of Richard Nixon and Donald Trump. On the campaign trail in 1972, you'd get anti-war protesters throwing rocks at Richard Nixon, shouting four-letter words at Richard Nixon. But by the same token, it came out during the Watergate hearings the next year that the Nixon administration was intentionally letting in anti-war protesters or even secretly inviting anti-war protesters because they wanted to kind of stage this sort of melodrama. Campaign 68 is a production of American Public Media and APM Reports. This episode was produced by Stephen Smith and me, Kate Ellis, along with Tracy Mumford. It was edited by Catherine Winter. Original music by Johnny Vince Evans. Mixing by Corey Schreppel. Support for this program comes from the Olseth Family Foundation, working to improve community through support of the arts, education, the environment, and the underserved. Thanks for listening. <laughs>